Hi, it's Shana here. Before this episode starts, I'm popping in with a quick reminder about our upcoming CEU on Thursday, May 16th on a person-centered approach to behavior management. School taught us a lot about ABA. However, the thing with ABA is that it's a science and it's constantly evolving. So a lot of what we learned back then doesn't always apply now. Today, we want to use a person-centered approach to behavior management, um, but what does that look like and how can our learners still make progress in this kind of approach? So join us live on Thursday, May 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time as Shira discusses how to use a person-centered approach to behavior management with your learners. This CEU is presented by our very own Shira Karpel. You can earn one learning CEU for ACE, QABA, or IBAO. Join us live at this event or to watch the recording asynchronously, go to howtoaba.com forward slash CEU. See you then. Hi, I'm Shira Karpow. And I'm Shana Gaunt, and we're board certified behavior analysts. At How To ABA, we provide practical resources, community, and support to ABA professionals. In each episode of our podcast, we will be having real conversations with real people sharing real stories about ABA. We'll share relevant strategies and actionable tips that will make us all better ABA practitioners. It's the ABA content you need that you're not going to learn in a textbook. Hi, everyone. Today on our podcast, we are talking with Barbara Heidenreich. And we met Barbara in Boston at ABAI. And one of the fascinating things about Barbara is that she's using ABA and behavior principles in animal training. Um, ABA does a whole lot of things and there's many different applications. And this is one of them that we kind of found a little bit fascinating. So welcome, Barbara. We're so happy to have you. Thanks for having me. Uh, we'd love to start by if you could just introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit about you. Yeah. So as you said, I specialize in working with animals and my field is a little different. I tend to focus more on the exotic animals. So I work mostly with zoos and facilities that have kind of the weird stuff in managed care. I don't work so much with companion animals, except for things like parrots <laughs> and, and the odd stuff. Um, and I work a lot with veterinary professionals and also conservation projects, which is one of my favorites. So trying to help improve the welfare of animals that might be in a sanctuary situation and being prepared for release back into the wild or helping projects where they're trying to increase populations of very rare species in the wild. So it's it's an interesting wow. career, that's for sure. So were you interested in animals and then found the science of behavior or were you first a behaviorist and then you applied it to animals? Yeah. So I started out as one of those little kids that absolutely loved animals and just wanted to somehow find a career with animals. Like a lot of people that have that passion, we tend to go down the veterinary pathway first because when you're little, you kind of think that's the only job there is working with animals. So I did do a lot of work in veterinary hospitals when I was younger. And that's where I learned that I didn't think that was a right fit for me, mainly because as many veterinary professionals will, will share is you know, and it's getting better, I, I will say, is that you're doing things to animals to help them, but that process can be quite distressful sometimes because there's often restraint, things of that nature. And so that put me off a little bit because what I loved about working with animals is trying to find this way to develop some sort of um you know, communication, some sort of relationship with them that where they wanted to engage with me. And I couldn't, 
I couldn't really identify what would a career path be. And so I just worked jobs where I got to take care of animals. And that led me to the zoo profession. And that's where I got introduced to training. And that's where I went, oh, this is the best thing ever. I just get to develop these relationships with animals. And that led me to asking the question, well, how does this work? How, how is this happening that, that animals are wanting to engage with me, wanting to interact? And that led me to wanting to learn more about the science. And I will say, just to kind of bring it back around, that veterinary medicine now is very focused on this concept called free, uh, fear-free medicine or cooperative care. And so it's really come full circle. And so the, the new generation of veterinarians and, and, the, and the old timers as well are very interested in how can they reduce um, uh, the stress and make it very fear-free for, for animals now cooperating in medical care. So it's, it's really cool. It's come full circle. Wow. That's really awesome. I, I have to say all I really know from animal training was like my few visits to like, you know, some park where they give a seal a fish after they jump into the water. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, is, is that what it is? Like, can you tell us more about how you use behavior principles to train these animals? Well, and you know, that's a really good point that you mentioned that because I would say a lot of us kind of started out that way. And I myself started out really learning about training by participating in educational presentations like that. My my foot in the door was really being a part of these free flight educational bird training demonstrations. And, and so there was, you know, a little bit of entertainment and a lot of education, kind of the, ed- the entertainment sort of gets people's foot in the door because they want to have a good time when they're going to um, a a facility like that. But then you're also trying to slip in conservation education, get people excited about wildlife and hope, hopefully building some, some caring and compassion and wanting to conserve animals out in the wild. And I will say zoo professionals, you know, they're all in it because they care about animals and wildlife, but there is that, that part of it where it's like, okay, so, you know, an animal does something and we're going to give them, you know, some, some, appetitive of some sort, whether it's a a belly rub or um, their favorite food items, things of that nature. So you kind of learn that basic building block and we're building a lot of behavior to shaping procedures. But for me as an animal training consultant, it, it started to become more complex. You know, it wasn't quite so simple as that. So I'm brought in a lot of times to solve behavior problems as well as teach basics of training type of thing. And so as they get more complex, you know, I'm sure similar to what, what you all deal with, you start finding, well, it's not so simple as that. It, you can't just, you know, toss a cookie here and there. It doesn't make sense, you know, and, and you start having to look at things like, okay, well, what's going on in this environment here? And what are functional reinforcers? And, and, you know, what led up to this problem here? And what are all the different contingencies that are contributing? And so you can't, it, it, it's never quite that simple. And so that's what really started inspiring my journey to really become much more educated on the science and becoming um, you know, much more, and it, and it leads to obviously not just the science, but the practical application, being able to apply that in these different environments. And of course, with a multitude, multitude of species that all have different ethology that you have to take into consideration as well. I find what you do so fascinating. And, you know, part of the reason is because animals are fascinating creatures, but also because ABA 
you know, when, when I was in school, you know, it was always about, well, ABA, autism, ABA, autism. But, you know, what we really learn in school is that ABA is a science and it's not just about autism. It can be applied to so many different things. And I never learned about animal training when I was in school, but I did learn about organizational behavior management and actually almost went that route in terms of ABA and businesses. But just hearing the application to so many different things, I'm fascinated by, you know, ABA and animal training. I'm also fascinated by ABA and fitness. And different applications to ABA. So I could seriously listen to you talk forever. And when you say, oh, well, you know, I'm not just called in because, you know, I need to give a seal a fish, but I'm called in because I have to, you know, solve behavioral issues or I have to look at personal welfare, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I go, wow, we're very similar because we do do those similar things. It's the field of ABA. And, you know, it just reminds me that, hey, maybe I am qualified to, you know, be an animal trainer. You have a future. You do. I do have an animal training. (laughs) So we get called in very often because, you know, a child might be hitting or, you know, having a tantrum or having a meltdown. Tell us about some of the behaviors you might get called in. And like, what does that look like with an animal? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do have some interesting stories. I think one that is uh, a popular one that, that I got to deal with that was fun because it was also conservation related and it also had um, media attention. (laughs) So there is a very rare bird called a kakapo. It's It's a rare flightless nocturnal parrot that's in New Zealand. And if anybody wants to look up the viral video, it's called Shagged by a Rare Parrot. And it was on a TV show called Last Chance to See, where um, Stephen Fry and a zoologist named Mark Carradine were going around the world looking at all these rare animals that were disappearing. And and so they went to see this parrot named Sirocco, um, who's out on these islands protected by the Department of Conservation. And as they were visiting with this bird, he tried to mate with Mark Carradine's head. And and so that video went viral. (laughs) And, um, And so while it was very funny and it brought a lot of attention to the conservation project because there's literally less than 200 of these birds at all in the entire wow. world and they they live on these islands um and so you know you can't go see them in a zoo or anything like that they're just they're just on these islands protected by the government um and uh and and the video was funny brought a lot of attention to the project you know you know brought in financial support things of that nature but the the problem with Sirocco mating with people's heads was actually quite serious because what was happening is he on the islands he was actually ambushing um people to mate with their heads the people that that were volunteering or working on the project the rangers and they're a very large bird so think of like like a large rooster that's attacking somebody and relentless about it. And you can't like put him in an enclosure or anything. He lives free roaming on the Island. And so somebody was um, actually dislocated his leg, trying to get him to stop. So it was actually a very serious problem. And, you know, you've got a rare bird doing this and you, you he's getting hurt, you know, because people can't get him to stop. So, um, so uh, I had gone down to New Zealand um, for, uh, other things, but I I connected with these people because I I'm so I was so crazy about cockpo. I just think they're amazing, and I just wanted to offer my services to say you know hey I I'm happy to help you in whatever way I can, whether it's just bringing attention to your project. And they said uh, you know well I I bet you five dollars you can't fix that problem. And I said if you'll let me take that bet, I'll come back and help you with that. So um so I I did come back and worked with them, and um. 
And we came up with a, a really cool solution. So, you know, basically the reinforcer is the opportunity to mate with somebody's head. So basically what we did is uh, we would have to go out and work with him at night. He's roaming free on this big island. They wear a, a transmitter so that they can locate them. So we would hike around the island with our, our receiver. We'd get a signal on him. And then we'd just hang out on the pathway and we'd talk really loudly because he, he was... Um, uh, hand raised when he was a chick because he had a health issue. And so he does kind of have an affinity for people and he would come tumbling out of the bushes and he would find us and he would hang out with us. And when we would see the little precursors to the fact that he wanted to mate, um, we basically uh, would, uh, we had trained him to do a few simple behaviors. And so we would basically um, redirect his attention. We'd ask him to do a behavior called targeting, which, which is basically orient a body part towards something. And, we, and we'd ask him to target. And then we would offer him a croc shoe. And I'll explain why a croc shoe in just a minute. And then he would mate with the shoe instead of somebody's head. And so we were able to basically say, okay, you know, you do this behavior when we see those little precursors to the wanting to climb up to somebody's head and you'll still get the reinforcer you want, but it's just directed to something else. And the reason it's the shoe and we were able to transfer that behavior so easily to the shoe is because when they're chicks, um, they're ground, like I said, they're they're ground dwelling. They don't fly. Um, the chicks uh, would be kept in these smaller pens on the ground, and when the rangers would go in to feed them, they would switch into croc shoes. And so, hand feeding formula was very much paired with seeing these shoes um, <clears throat> right away. So they had this, you know, connection with hand feeding formula. And so, uh, it's very muddy in New Zealand. And the rangers would would often change into croc shoes uh, and leave their shoes on the porches of their houses. And so he had he had a reputation for stealing the croc shoes. So we kind of thought maybe it would it would be a possibility. And so condition stimulus. Yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> and so it worked. And um, so that was one. That's a weird story, but it's a fun one. Wow. That so he did a functional assessment with a replacement behavior that was you know more functionally appropriate than someone's head. <laughs> yeah. That's and awesome. It, and it was a conservation project. So it was a fun one. <laughs> yeah. Wow. How, how do you find like the, the animal world? Are they receptive to someone that's coming in with these, you know, behavior change strategies? Like what is the, what is the attitude of someone like you coming in to support them? Well, I mean, I'm usually contacted, you know, similar to, I'm sure um, you guys, when somebody needs help, you know, so I'm not, I don't have to, you know, like impart myself on somebody They're They're usually contacting me because they're, they're looking for guidance and assistance. And um, so, so they're pretty receptive. And I think as, as we, I think a lot of people have experienced, if you can make the material um, accessible, uh, and deliver it in a way that is understandable, people are open and receptive to it. You know, I don't come in there and try to throw out a lot of terminology that I've been learning over the years. And, and again, I started out like the people I'm working with. I started out as a zoo professional. And so I have experience doing the work that they've done. And I think that also helps make it easy for them. You know, I'm, I, you know, I've cleaned a lot of enclosures in my life too, you know, scooped <laughs> a lot of poop. So, uh, so it's relatable, you know, and, and so I think that also helps as well. You know, you don't, I, I try not to make it inaccessible for them. I try to make it easy. Easy, um, as well. 
It's uh-huh. nice starting off on equal ground. I mean, same thing with Shira and I, right? We started off, as I call it, in the trenches, right? We started off as ABA therapists with students with autism, Shira also being a teacher, so that we have that, not so we have the respect, but that's how we built up. And now when we're going out and, and offering approaches, we're not offering approaches because we read them in a textbook. We're offering approaches because we've practically applied them. So it sounds exactly what you've done. Listen, I've been there. I've done that. Listen to me. I've got the same experience as you. Let's try this. I know that this probably won't work because I've been there and I know that that may not be feasible for you to implement. Yeah, I agree. I think practical application, you know, you know, and I'm, I'm an old timer. I've been in the field for a while now as an animal trainer and that practical application stuff matters a lot, especially in the animal training field, because we do have a lot of species, um, especially exotic animal training. And, and it's, it's a weird thing, you know, for people to kind of wrap their brains around, but there, there is something to be said to understand in the ethology and the phylogeny of these species. You know, it works hand in hand with the ontogeny. And so that is one of the unique things about the animal training field. So when I'm working, especially with the zoo professionals, I'm learning a lot from the person right next to me. And I'm sure you have that as well with your individuals. You know, you're asking a lot of questions about the individual that you're getting to know. Um, but, you know, I you know, every time I get to encounter a new species, you know, like, like I gave the example of the kakapo, I mean, that's a very weird parrot species different from other parrot species. And so you have to learn a lot about that species because it does come into play in terms of, you know, what I'm going to learn about that, that, you know, their behavior and how that's going to apply to my intervention. They kakapo are completely different in their reproductive strategy compared to other parrots. And that actually impacted um, how our intervention was going to go. So there's always so much to learn. Wow. It sounds like you've been doing a really a lot of like a vast majority of different things with different animals. Um, What work has been the most meaningful for you? Uh, Yeah, it's definitely the conservation work that I think, again, for me, has the most impact. I also got to work a number of years in Indonesia with orangutans and an orangutan um, um, conservation project where these are animals that are displaced due to the palm oil farming. And so these animals come into the sanctuary and if they can, they rehabilitate them and release them back into the wild, into places where the land is protected. And so that was an incredible experience. We um, it was in partnership with the Oregon zoo. And so I would go back every year, um, twice a year with a different zoo professional from Oregon zoo. And then that facility has um, many orphaned um, baby orangutans. And so we would go work with the, the young orangutans and also with the adult orangutans. And many of the adult orangutans, we were training them to cooperate in their own veterinary care so that they could um, you know, get rehabilitated and then released back into the wild. And then with the young orangutans, they basically work with them until they're about seven years old. And then they put them on pre-release islands and then they get released back into the wild. And so the young orangutans, I, I would say, you know, a lot of them, they're kind of being raised, they're, they're learning survival skills out in the wild, but they, the, the women that work with them in the, in the forest, they kind of raise them like little kids. <laughs> and so they, there can be behavioral challenges. And, um, and so a lot of that was, you know, teaching the orangutans to, you know, come back into the, you know, from the forest and, um, and, you know, go into their, uh, holding places at night or, you know, to, um, 
you know, not take things, you know, grab things out of the, their hands or, um, you know, uh, there was, you know, sometimes aggressive responses, things of that nature. So it was, you know, how to, you know, address things like that. And, and so, because the longer they can stay in forest school, the more likely they'll be able to be released back into the wild. So, so all that kind of stuff just makes you feel like you're contributing to something that's so much bigger than you and, you know, and saving a species. So that's really awesome. Amazing. I'd love to come on the next trip to Indonesia and work with <laughs> the orangutan. <laughs> That'd be so cool. It's pretty cool. Um, are there any animals that you won't work with, like that are either too dangerous or, you know, that maybe these behavior change principles just aren't as effective? Gosh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I haven't been you know, it's not so much about the animals, you know, I think it's more like you, you guys have pointed out, you know, in these situations that, you know, there's an OBM quality to all this, you're always working with people mm -hmm. as well, you know, because your goal isn't, you know, I can't train everything. The goal is to really impart this information on the caregivers so that they implement the procedure. So I think the greater challenge isn't so much the animal, it's, it's more, you know, does the facility and the people have the infrastructure to keep things going? Are they going to implement what you're sharing? And, and um, you know, have you done what you can to make it continue to move forward? So I think maybe sometimes that can be more of the challenge than than the the animal, so to speak. As far as dangerous animals, we we tend to have things in place that make it safe for us, um, whether it's working through protective barriers or using utensils so that then we're not having, you know, direct contact with the animal so that we're not put in those kinds of situations. And I can always assess things myself and just say, mm, I'm not going to, you know, work with that animal unless we have these things in place so that everybody is safe. Um, so that, you know, that I think that comes with years of experience of seeing many different things so that you don't put yourself in those conditions. Um, but, you know, I think it's more, I, I, I think if I'm going to say no, it's more just because of a, maybe a people situation, you know, that maybe we don't have the right support system or we don't have, you know, the, the infrastructure in place to move forward until those things are set up and maybe, you know, maybe that might be a barrier to move forward. It. I, I like love the picture you sent with you and the rhinoceros. That just yeah. looked so cool. Yeah. <laughs> you get to spend time with some of the most awesome animals. Yeah, for sure. Um, I like what you said about train the trainer, because in regardless of what profession we're in, that really is the ultimate goal of may, having other people be self-sufficient, right? And training that trainer. Now you have a website too, that people can go to if they want more information, right? Yes, thank you. Um, my website is animaltrainingfundamentals.com and it is a membership program. And so we do have an individual membership. We also, uh, which you can either join for a monthly program or an annual. And then uh, there is a facility option that can have up to 200 sub accounts where each individual can track their own learning. And it features uh, lots of video examples from my work around the world. So people can learn about applying these principles with all sorts of speech species and, uh, and really get their feet wet, whether they're a beginner or they're really experienced. So there's something for everybody there. Wow. I'm definitely checking that out just from a fascination standpoint than anything else, but uh, I love it. I love what you do. I love that the application is so practical yet in such a totally different field. Um, I love it. Thank so. you. Excellent. And there's a promo code too. So if people are listening to this website or sorry, to this podcast, there is a promo code. We'll post this in the show, show notes. But if you would like to try out an individual membership for 10 days, um, it's a dollar using the code. It's try 10 days, uh, all capitals. Again, we'll put that in the show notes though. 
Yeah. So go check it out. Um, I find this fascinating and I think you probably share videos of the animals and, and of you and, and I guess that, you know, there's less of a consent issue of sharing their pictures when it's animals, exactly. uh, <laughs> which is nice. You get the rhinoceros to sign on the dotted line. Yeah. <laughs> or like blur his face a little bit. So he doesn't mind. Um, yeah. So I'm sure it's fascinating. We're going to check it out. And this was so interesting and we're so glad we got to meet you. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thanks so much, Barbara. Thanks for joining today's conversation. Wherever you get your podcast, please go and subscribe, rate and review so others can find out about us too. For more from How to ABA, including free resources and ABA materials, visit our blog at howtoaba.com and make sure that you're following us on social media for more practical tips and updates.